All right, good morning. Woo. Good morning. I'm hot. You can't tell me my dad's that quiet. Hello. Hi, church. <laughs> it's great to be back up here. I've been off for uh, a couple of weeks, and uh, we have a wonderful text to jump back into today. You know, my dad leaves all sorts of treats, leftover gummies up here for me, and well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me so we can get right into our text today and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, today we are uh, continuing our series through the incredible Gospel according to John. Um, if you're new with us, I like to take a book in the Bible and go verse by verse through it. Expound on the scriptures as we go. We usually cover about a paragraph or so at a time. And I usually break it up into a couple easy headings for us. The Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for chaining in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So let's... Uh, begin by reading God's Word today, and we'll see what God has for us. We are in John chapter 20. As I said, Jesus has risen from the dead, and now He appears to His disciples. So let's begin in verse 19, and just have a few verses. We'll read through to verse 23 this morning. This is the reading of God's infallible Word. On the moot on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of any, it is withheld. So the scene in John's Gospel now shifts. We go from the empty tomb, probably back to the upper room, possibly John Mark's house, if you put together Mark's gospel in the book of Acts. But what a day it has been. If you recall, when chapter 20 opened, it was the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and some of the women have come to the tomb in order to finish preparing the body of the Lord Jesus Christ for burial. And then when they arrived early that morning, they were astonished at what they saw, for the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and the body of Jesus was not there and so Mary believes someone has stolen the body of Jesus and she turns around immediately she runs back and goes to tell the apostles Peter and John and when she arrives she said to them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him and then we read that Peter and John run to the tomb and when they arrived they also saw that the 
tomb was empty. And when they stooped in to see all they saw lying on that slab where the Lord was were the linen clothes and the cloth for the Lord's face folded up, lying there. And then came five appearances of Jesus that will be that will follow. Jesus appears five times on the very first day. Jesus appears first, you'll remember, to Mary Magdalene. That is where we left off last week. And as she now returns to the tomb after running and telling Peter and John, the Lord appears to her. And is there she encounters the risen Christ. She is the first of the five appearances that day. And at first, he is somewhat veiled to her. She thinks she's speaking to a gardener. And then you will recall Jesus calls her by name. Mary. Mary. And she immediately recognizes him as my Lord. My Lord. And she falls at his feet, clinging to him. The second appearance we read about is in Matthew's Gospel as Jesus appears to the women who came with Mary to the tomb. This was after the angel had told them Jesus had risen from the dead and they were to go and tell the disciples of this wonderful news. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And as they were walking, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. They also took hold of Jesus' feet and worshipped him. Matthew 28, verse 9. The third appearance was to Peter. This was a private appearance. We don't know where or when exactly this took place. Possibly on his way back home, you'll recall after Peter and John saw the empty tomb, they each went to their own home. It's mentioned in Luke 24, 34, and Paul also tells us Jesus appears to Peter in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And then number four, Jesus appears to two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. We've gone through that story several times. So when we come now to our verses here in John 20, Jesus has yet to appear to the 11, to, to his disciples as a whole. In fact, the last time that we saw all these men together, Peter was busy denying the Lord three times, and the rest of them, minus John, scattered, leaving Jesus to die at the cross alone as each one went to his own home. The testimony of Scripture is all the disciples left him and fled. But by the evening of that first Lord's day, the disciples had heard the news of the resurrection. And John tells us that they've now gathered together, possibly at John Mark's house. And when Jesus appears amongst them, it's a, a revival of sorts. And I want you to see as Jesus, one, relieves their fears, two, he restores their joy, and then thirdly, he restores their ministry. So let's begin with number one, and the disciples' fears relieved. Their fears were relieved, because after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were no doubt terrified. They, they believed that, well, they would be next. So we find them huddled behind locked doors, 
fearful that they will be discovered. So let's return to the text as we read in verse 19. On the evening of that day, and we know what that day is, that day is the day of the resurrection. And so John records on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And that's important for John to note. Jesus was crucified on Friday. He was raised from the dead early Sunday morning. First day of the week. Jesus said over and over again concerning his death and resurrection, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So, every Sunday morning, the church gathers together as we are. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. So we continue in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. Remember, almost always in John, when he refers to the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish religious authorities apostate Israel and the disciples feared that the authorities were coming after them next and so they're hiding behind locked doors and and no doubt they were thinking about the words that Jesus had spoken to them just a few nights earlier during the week in the upper room discourse you'll remember it was in John chapter 15 verse 19 that Jesus said to them if you were of the world the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They have it from the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And there's a few verses later, still in the upper room discourse, uh, Jesus gave them this warning in John 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This was the kind of delusion that the Jews were under. Religious Israel was so blinded by Satan, they believed they were offering service to God as they would hunt down and kill every follower they could of the way. These little Christ, these Christians. And we see that in the life of Saul. Jesus also warned the disciples in John chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve. The disciples on their own felt defeated. They were no doubt believing that they had let Jesus down. After all, they betrayed him. And the moment he died, it appears that the whole thing just fell apart. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. But it doesn't end there, does it? 
Look at the next two words in verse 19. What's it say? Jesus came. Jesus came and stood amongst them. (laughs) The resurrected Christ has suddenly appeared amongst the disciples. How did this happen? The doors were locked and suddenly he just appears out of thin air. The fact is, is in his resurrected body, he just passed through those locked doors. He has a body that is both natural and supernatural, if you will. Natural enough that you could touch him and see that it was him. But supernatural enough that he could just appear walking on the road to Emmaus or walk right through a door or out of a tomb. But this only escalated their fears. The last time they had seen Jesus, he was being arrested in the garden and was taken away to be crucified. Only John of the disciples followed him all the way to the cross. The rest of them scattered. Now suddenly he appears in their midst. He who has been crucified and was dead, behold, he is alive forevermore. But the disciples, they think they are seeing a ghost. Luke 24 gives us some additional insight into this unfolding scene. Luke records in Luke 24, 37, they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. He thought they saw a ghost. They, they just couldn't comprehend this. So in Luke 24, 38, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And this word troubled is the word tarasso in the Greek, and figuratively it means to agitate, uh, to shake, to shake back and forth, to and fro, like on a boat in the midst of a storm. It's often translated as terrified, anxious, or distressed. And Jesus, who sees their troubled hearts, and he sees their doubts, relieves their fears. He relieves their fears. And in an act of tender compassion and loving concern for his own, we read at the end of verse 19, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace is that, that inner calm, that, that inner tranquility in the midst of the raging storm. Peace doesn't remove the trouble. Peace gives you the serenity and the stillness within your heart in the midst of the storm. Jesus never promised us an easy life. He said, in fact, in John 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And when Jesus spoke about peace to his disciples, he wasn't only talking about their current life situation. Yes, he gives us a supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of the storms. But he's also talking about man's peace with God. 
advance peace with God as it is connected to what Jesus accomplished through his death and now his resurrection. This is why in the book of Romans, Paul writes of peace as one of the results of our justification. For instance, he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says in verse 19, peace be with you, this is more than just a greeting you see, as many commentators will say in your Bibles. Jesus is saying, I have gone to the cross and paid for the sins of my people. I have defeated death. Put your faith in me and believe, and I will justify you before my Father, so you will have eternal peace with God. The natural man is opposed to God. He's at war with him. So we desperately need the peace of God's grace. And we have that peace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ that we can find true and lasting peace in this world. Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus relieves their fears as he brings peace through locked doors. And notice, peace with God is a gift. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you. Receive the gift of the Lord's peace. Peace with God. Now when Christ offers us peace, he, he does so in another sense also. First, he offers us peace with God. That has to be first, a mercy by his grace. But it is also true, graciously true, that after we have peace with God, that he offers us the peace of God also. It's God's own peace that he gives to us. And Paul speaks of this peace when he says in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything. Remember, Paul's in prison writing to the church in Philippi. Do not be anxious, he says from the cell, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the peace of God. For three plus years, we must recognize that these disciples followed Jesus wherever it was that he went. He left their entire lives behind, their families, their jobs, their income, the comforts of home they left behind to follow Jesus because they believed he was the Christ, the Son of God. You wouldn't follow Jesus for three years unless you believed that. And that was their confession. They truly loved the Lord, but they abandoned him, didn't they? And now here they were, hiding behind locked doors, 
crippled by their fear. And what does Jesus do? He pursues them, doesn't he? He pursued them. He goes through locked doors for you. He relieves their fears and he says, peace be with you. I am here. And I want you to know that this same risen Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father says the very same thing to you and I today. In me, you may have peace. Next, number two, I want you to notice, secondly, their joy being restored. The joy restored after relieving their fears with his peace, the Lord now intends to fill them up with his joy. And he does this by proving to them that they are not seeing a ghost. <laughs> they are not seeing a spirit. They are seeing the risen Christ. And how gracious of our Lord that he now provides them with even further evidence, further proof that he has risen from the dead. And so we read in verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. He showed them his, his nail-pierced hands, the wounds, and, and the hole in his side where the soldier's spear had been thrusted into his side. His wounds were still visible in his resurrected body, his glorified body. And beloved, they are still visible. In Revelation chapter 5, when John is caught up into the heavens to see a glimpse of the last things to come, he sees Jesus as a lamb as though it had been slain. And when we arrive in heaven, we will gaze in total awe that one so mighty and one so majestic would have laid down his life for us on Calvary's cross. And we will worship him throughout all the ages to come, for by his wounds we are healed. And so he showed them both his hands and his side, the visible Marks of his sacrificial death for us. There is no question who this is. This is the same Jesus of Nazareth who these men walked with. The Son of God who has been raised from the dead. And again, Luke 24 gives us additional insight here that is helpful for us. In Luke 24, 39 through 43, it's the same setting. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet here, that it is I myself. Touch me, he says in Luke, and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. It was those marks that gained our peace with God. For the wrath of God upon our sins fell on him so that we might be forgiven. It was like Jesus saying, look, see how much I love you. See the wounds of my hands, of my feet, and my side. This is the price I paid so you would be forgiven. Not counting 
the wrath of God upon him that we can't see. But we know he bore for us. And then notice what it says. Jesus asked in verse 4 to 1, he says, have you anything here to eat? <laughs> wow, what's up here? Verse 42, right? they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Look, this wasn't a vision. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't a, a disembodied spirit. His wounds were the evidence of his crucifixion. And when he walked right through locked doors and dared his disciples to see my hands and my feet, it is I myself, touch me, Jesus said, and see. And I love when they think they're seeing a spirit. Jesus is like, well, all right, give me some of that fish to eat. And he starts eating it right in front of them. How about that? That's all they needed to see. And so, back in John 20, verse 20, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That's kind of simply put. <laughs> you think? I mean, can you imagine at this very moment, when their eyes were finally opened to this reality, they must have just been beside themselves as they finally realized it's really him. It's Jesus. He is alive just as he said. I mean, this changes everything, doesn't it? The tables have been completely turned from sorrow to inexpressible joy, I would have translated that to and, and Jesus promised this did he not back in John 16 20 you'll remember as we went through the gospel he said truly truly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will grieve but your grief will be turned into joy Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy, because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Amen, indeed. And once again, what Jesus said is true. This leads us to our third heading, and the ministry renewed. The ministry renewed. And I broke this into, I think, three in your bulletin. There's, there's four sub-notes under the ministry that's renewed because, you see, Jesus didn't just die on the cross and rise from the dead so that we can have peace with God on our own. No, he's also commissioned us to take his message of forgiveness, to take his message of mercy to the ends of the earth. He's called us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And having now revealed himself to his disciples, Jesus now reveals the plan that he has for their lives. This is the ministry. So, in verse 21... Jesus said to them again, peace 
be with you. Now, why does he say that again? Well, for starters, the, the character of the New Testament church will be marked by God's peace. Is it not? Romans 15, uh, 15 verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Peace with God is a permanent fruit of every born-again believer. Having been justified by faith in Christ, Romans 5, 1. Both the message of the church and the disposition of believers is, is predominantly characterized by the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Sometimes the Lord just has to say things twice to get our attention, does he not? Some of us three times or five times or ten times. And now in the Gospel of John comes the Great Commission. The Great Commission, we're all familiar with the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, the, the Great Commission is there also. But here it is in the Gospel of John, the Great Commission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this begs the question, how did the Father send the Son? Well, the Father sent the Son into the world of, of darkness, into a world of depravity, into a world of lost sinners, to preach the gospel and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we cannot pay for sins with our life, but we can lay our life down. But here Jesus commissions him as the Father has already commissioned him. So, so what exactly, though, are they to do? Well, for starters, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, talking about being the salt and the light of the earth, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They are to penetrate the world of darkness and their light must shine into the world. So this is the Great Commission. And this Great Commission is still in effect for today. Is it not? It has been passed down through the centuries and what Jesus has said to these ten disciples is passed on to us as we too are sent into the world just as the baton is passed and the next runner in a, in a relay race so Jesus also hands the task of ministry for God onto us think of it this way we were chosen by the Father out of the world and we have been commissioned by God to go back into the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our primary business in the world, to reach the world for Christ. So, this great commission is still on the books. It's never been rescinded. It's still in effect. And it is his commission to you and to me. 
This isn't for a few. This commission belongs to the global church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, And he gave some as apostles. So there are only some as apostles. True. And some as prophets. And some as evangelists. And some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So you've all been commissioned. We are commissioned. And this is the authority of the ministry that you have been called into. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And guess what? You don't have to go overseas to fulfill this. <laughs> you can go right across the street. You can do this right at your work, at your office, at your school, on the job. So we talked about the character of ministry. That's the peace with God. We've seen the authority of ministry. That is, we've been commissioned by Christ. And Jesus said, and all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now I want you to notice the power of the ministry. Because this commission to go and to make disciples of all nations is so far beyond the ability of any human being to fulfill. The only way it could possibly be fulfilled would be for God to give them a supernatural power beyond themselves. They couldn't do this on their own. It's not hard. It's impossible. To take it to the ends of the earth, these ragtag group of disciples, forget the internet, they didn't even have a bike. How are they going to do that? So, in verse 22... It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, breath and wind have always been symbolic of the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Um, for example, in John 3, 8, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you can't see the wind, but you can feel the wind. So it is with the Holy Spirit. You cannot see the Holy Spirit. He, he doesn't have a physical body. He is a spirit. But you can feel his presence, his promptings. He's like the wind in the sails of the boat that's ushering us along. Now, this isn't saying that the Spirit comes to us in stages. The apostles received the Holy Spirit, yes, on the day of Pentecost, almost 50 days from, from the time we are in now. This isn't like the Holy Spirit comes here, and then a little bit here, and then some here, and, and yes, you're sealed in the Holy Spirit, but you only have a little bit. When do I have enough? And did I get baptized with the Holy Spirit? And how about the Spirit of Fire? And how about this baptism? And, that, and this, it, no. One spirit. But there's no doubt in my mind Jesus here is equipping them with great power through the Holy Spirit. Some have called it a, a down payment. Um, I wouldn't say that. It might be here that the Spirit was with them and later he will be in them as the Lord Jesus said before. 
Luke tells us after Jesus uh, ate the fish, he then opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the Holy Spirit. It, it, it would be only the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that they could do anything for Christ. Even during this interlude in between the resurrection and, and the day of Pentecost, they can go 50 days without the Holy Spirit with them. Jesus said in John 15 verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I believe the context here indicates when Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit, he has in mind equipping the apostles for ministry, and I'd summarize it by saying he's commissioned them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way I would discern this. Well, this leads us finally to the task of ministry. We find it in verse 23. Notice carefully what Jesus says. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, first of all, this verse has been, uh, we'll call it misinterpreted <laughs> by the Roman Catholics to mean that the Roman Catholic Church and its popes and its bishops and its priests have the authority to forgive sins. Father, I've sinned. Um, yeah, go confess it to the priest. That's obviously not an accurate uh, interpretation. Scrip scripture teaches that God alone forgives sin. Mark 2, verse 7 says, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Daniel 9, verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. We don't have the authority on our own to forgive sin. We can forgive one another. And we are commanded to forgive men of their trespasses against us. Matthew 6, verse 14. But it is God who ultimately must forgive sin. And the apostles got this. We see it when we follow their ministry. For example, we have the testimony of Peter. Peter in the book of Acts. We can follow the disciples and see this. Acts 10, verse 42. I'll share two of the verses quickly with you. Peter says, And he, Christ, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God, speaking of Christ, as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Did you get that? P Peter says, uh, We have been called... We have been commissioned, we have been ordered to preach the gospel, and what are we to preach? That everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I can say to you on God's authority, your sins are forgiven. If you will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can say on God's authority, you are still dead in your sins, and your sins remain. That's what he's saying here. I'll show you another example. 
We see the same thing a few chapters later in Acts chapter 13. Paul on his missionary journey, Acts 13 verse 38, says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Again, you have Peter saying, we can tell you your sins are forgiven if you believe. Here is Paul. We can tell you, everyone who believes in him, your sins are forgiven. And just to remind you, this was the great commission in Luke's gospel. When Jesus said, go, you are to go and to preach, he says, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. It's all here. It's all here. I am sending you in the power of the Spirit who was promised by my Father to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's the message of the gospel. How did we lose that along the way? You are a sinner. You were born a sinner. You need your sins forgiven. And there is only one who can do that. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the task of ministry, to, to preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the right to say to someone what Jesus said to the religious leaders back in John 8, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You and I can say this to anyone. You can say, believe, and your sins are forgiven. Or you can say, if you will not believe, you will die in your sins. That's not on my authority. That's God's authority. That's what his word says. I'm just the messenger. I don't have the authority to forgive anybody's sins, but I have been called to proclaim the message of forgiveness based upon the authority of God's word and scripture. That's the gospel. You're a sinner. You need saving. Christ lived the perfect life you and I never could. He died in your place. He bore your sins on that tree. He took the wrath that we deserved. You believe in him. I bring nothing but filthy rags when I stand in his presence. I have nothing to offer. Nothing I can earn. I come with my sin broken and I lay it down at the foot of the cross. The gospel is not about a better life. The gospel is not about social justice. The gospel is not about feeling good or fulfilling your dreams or being the best version of yourself. It has nothing to do with any of that. The gospel is about forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus instructed the disciples to proclaim that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance of the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the Lord's name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So this is the message that they were to take into the world and it is now our message to preach. But what does it mean, that word forgive? The word literally means to send away. It means to remit a debt. It means to let go. It means to disregard. It means to, to wipe the slate clean. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means not some of your sins are forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. Your forgiveness does not depend on the size of your sin. It depends upon the mercy and grace that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. So, all our sins, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. When you are born again through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he scrubs and he, he purges that stain of sin from your soul and to you are left white as snow. Repeatedly, Scripture makes clear, God remembers our sins no more. The Bible says in Isaiah 38, verse 17, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Picture after picture of God forgetting our sins. Micah 7 Verse 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. So as we close today, I ask you this one question. Really, there can't be a more important question than this. Do you have peace with God? The Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. That's how we're born. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Enemies of God. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Meanwhile, we are on the broad road headed for destruction. But God didn't leave us blind. He didn't leave us without a Savior. He sent a bright light into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, Peter preached next to. He died on the cross for our sins. He paid our debt upon the cross. The Bible says for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of 
of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live in righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. 1 John 3 verse 5 says, He appeared in order to take away sins. That's ultimately why he came. It was to deal with our sin problem and to die upon that cross. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That noose that was wrapped around yours and my neck has been released by the blood of Christ. So if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So here's the question. Do you have peace with God? Have you ever come to the foot of the cross repentant, confessing that I am a sinner and I am in desperate need of your mercy for the forgiveness of sins? Have you ever said to God as the tax collector did in Luke 18, 13, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. The invitation to accept Christ isn't an offer. It's not a decision to take it or leave it. I really don't like that term. It's a command. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Churches have gotten into the habit of making the gospel into an offer. The gospel isn't something just laying down on the floor for something to maybe pick up or take or, or leave it as you choose. We are called to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And I call on you today to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, the Bible says, you may have life in His name. If you are in need of prayers this morning, we want to invite you to come forward. We'd be happy to pray for you. And would you please stand as we worship our Lord, King of Kings.